Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Now, I got to tell you, uh, as, as sad as I was to finish the series on Joseph a few weeks ago, because I really do love the story of Joseph. It's like one of my absolute favorites. But as, as sad as I was to see that series end, I have been looking forward to this series for a long time. And you know, when I thought about, you know, even like a year ago, stepping into the role of the teaching pastor here, one of my hopes is that I would get to be able to preach a series through one of the gospels to tell the story of Jesus. Um, and so if, if, if nothing else, um, God, give me, please, the opportunity to preach through this whole book. And if you don't know this or not, um, Luke's a long book. So, so uh, buckle up. We're going we're gonna to be here for a little, a little while. Uh, but I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. And I've titled this series, All That Jesus Began. All That Jesus Began. And the reason why I've titled that, and as many of you know, the book of Luke is actually um, the first book in a two-volume set. And the first book is Luke. The second book is Acts. Well done. In the opening verses of the book of Acts, this is what the author says. He says, in the first book, that's the book of Luke, O Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, he said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So the author of the book of Luke says it, that his first volume, Luke, in the book of Acts, he says that it was the beginning of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So that's the journey that we're about to embark upon, a study of the life of Jesus. But before we begin, let's talk briefly about who wrote these two books, Luke and Acts. And I'll give you a hint. One of those books is named after the author. So who wrote the book of Luke and Acts? Wrong. It was Acts. No, I'm just kidding. No, it was, it was Luke, right? Luke is the one who wrote these books. And although he never comes right out and identifies himself in the books, both the early tradition of the church, all the way back into the first century, as well as the textual evidence, especially from the book of Acts, point to Luke as the author. So who was Luke? Well, we don't have a lot of information about Luke, but what we do have is informative. According to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4, Luke was a physician. He, he was an educated man with an eye for detail and a strong command of the Greek language. We also know from the book of Philemon that Luke was a traveling companion and a fellow worker with Paul. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we discovered that, that Luke alone was present with Paul as Paul was awaiting execution in Rome. But there's one more thing that's worth noting uh, about Luke. And that's what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter four. Luke was a Gentile. Luke was not a, a Jewish man like the rest of the writers of the scriptures. And because Luke is the only uh, writer in the entire Bible who is not Jewish, Luke emphasizes Jesus as the savior who is available to everyone. 
As we read through the book of Luke, Luke, more than any other writer, will focus on, on, on women. He'll focus on children. He's going to focus on Gentiles and Jews. That's because Luke himself was one of those ones who was blessed to be able to count himself a follower of Jesus. Well, let's begin our study in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, kind of a prologue for his book. He starts out with this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Period. Did you catch that? Luke begins his gospel with what my English professors would have called a run-on sentence. <laughs> Look at that. Isn't that something? Both, in both the Greek and the English, this is one long sentence. But while I would have received red marks and point deductions on my papers for something like this, Luke is actually lauded as, as, as a, a master architect of the Greek language. This, this opening sentence, as well as the rest of the book of Luke, is considered one of the best pieces of Greek literature ever written. Isn't that something? The, the gospel of Luke, uh, is, uh, it's, a, it's a demonstration of Luke's uh, command over the Greek language. It's a literary masterpiece. And in this opening sentence, Luke provides us with loads of, of information. Loads of, he tells us what he's writing. He tells us why he's writing. He tells us who he's writing to. And he tells us how he gathered his information, all in his opening sentence. It's impressive. So let's talk about you know, what he's writing and how he gathered his information. So as a traveling companion and a close friend of the Apostle Paul, Luke would have had access to a wealth of eyewitness accounts to Jesus' life. You know, no doubt, you know, Luke would have had the opportunity to meet people like Peter and John. He, he would have talked with Barnabas. He would have also likely you know, maybe met uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary. You know, Luke had access to these eyewitnesses uh, of Christ's life. And not only that, but Luke would have had access to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, most biblical scholars agree that, that Mark was the first of the four Gospels that were written. So Luke would have had access to that account as well. And after carefully studying all of these different accounts, Luke compiles his research into what he calls an orderly account of all that Jesus began. And because of his efforts, because of his efforts, we have 24 chapters filled with stories and teachings from the life of Jesus. It's the longest and it's the most comprehensive account of Jesus' life. And actually, if you want to look at it word for word, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. That's why I chose it. We're gonna... It's a long book. And praise God that we have it. Because without Luke's gospel, there are so many stories and so many teachings of Jesus that we would not have. Let me just give you an example of some or a sample of some of the stories and some of the teachings that are unique to Luke's gospel. We have in Luke's gospel the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. It's not included in the other gospels. 
or Mary's visit with Elizabeth. We have Jesus's birth in a manger or the visit from the shepherds. We have Joseph and Mary bringing him to the temple as a baby and bringing him to the temple when he was 12 years old. There's the story of the Good Samaritan. There's the story of the prodigal son, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and the story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Those are all stories that are unique to Luke's gospel. And trust me, there are many, many more. I didn't give you all of them. If we didn't have Luke's gospel, we wouldn't have any of those stories. What a treasure. Some of those, any of the favorite stories that, just, that I just listed? Some of my favorite stories are there. Praise God that he moved Luke to investigate, research, and to write these things down. So that's what he wrote, right? That's what he wrote. Let's talk about who he was writing to. Luke says that he is writing his account for someone named Theophilus. That is a great name. Probably won't be on this year's list of most popular baby names, though. <laughs> someone once said, that's Theophilus' name I've ever heard. <laughs> Theophilus. Now, this is the same person that Luke addresses in the opening chapter of his second book, the book of Acts. And the truth is, we don't really know too much about who Theophilus was, but the fact that Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus tells us that he was in some type of position of honor. The word Theophilus actually means loved by God or lover of God. Actually, because of that, some people have concluded that actually maybe Luke was just writing to everybody who considers himself a lover of God. And while I do think that Luke's book does apply to everyone who is a lover of God, he wouldn't have included the words most excellent in front of the name Theophilus if he wasn't writing to a specific person. Let's talk about... Um, why he wrote it, because I think that's the most important piece here in the, in the prologue. In verse four, Luke tells us why. He says that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wanted Theophilus to know with certainty the things that he had been taught about Jesus. He wanted Theophilus to know the truth, and he wanted him to be confident in the truth. And brothers and sisters, God has used Luke's gospel for centuries to do the same thing for all who would consider, consider themselves lovers of God. And I am confident, I am confident that God is gonna use this study to deepen our knowledge and our certainty as well. But I will say this, I hope, I hope that our time in Luke's gospel is more, as I've already prayed, is more than just you filling up your mind with lots of knowledge about who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. I hope that your heart, every time you come to God's word, is God, change me. Help me to be more like Jesus. Because if you just get to the end of this and you just got you know, a, a head full of knowledge that can help you win Bible trivia, whoop-de-doo, right? The, the idea is that we want God to change us by his word. And so that is our hope for this, for this study. Let's begin now in verse five as Luke begins to tell the story about Jesus. But instead of starting with Jesus, Luke is going to start with the forerunner of Jesus, 
a guy by the name of John the Baptist. So let's start in uh, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke begins his story by introducing us to the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. But before we talk about them, I want you to notice the way that, that he begins. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, he says, the, the story that I'm about to tell you, the story that you're about to hear took place in the time when King Herod, Herod the Great, was ruling in Judea. And one of the things that you're going to see as we work our way through Luke's gospel is that Luke is a historian. He's very concerned with that, that you understand that this isn't just some fairy tale. This isn't, he doesn't start off with, you know, once upon a time in a land far away, right? This is, this is not a fairy tale. He wants you to know that the events that you're about to hear are rooted in history. These are real people at a real time in history, in the time when King Herod was ruling. Now, we know from our study in history that Herod the Great was the king of Judea from 37 to 4 BC. We know that. But I don't think that a timestamp is all that Luke has in mind here. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If I were to say to you, in the time of the Vietnam War, or if I were to say to you, in, in the time of 9-11, or if I were to say to you, in, in the time of COVID-19, if you were alive, if you lived during those time periods, immediately, as soon as I say that, you begin to feel certain feelings, don't you? Feelings of, of, of passion, feelings of anger, frustration, different feelings might come up in you as you think about that. You might have feelings about what was going on in the culture during those time periods. And I think in the same way, when Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, the original audience would have immediately had a sense for what that time period was like. And there's at least, at least two thoughts that have to come to mind when you think about the time of King Herod. Herod was a builder, and Herod was a destroyer. Herod was a builder, and he was a destroyer. He was an amazing builder. You cannot visit Israel and not be just really impressed with all that King Herod accomplished during his reign over, what, 30 years or so. During his reign, listen to this, over 2,000 years ago, he built fortresses and beautiful palaces with mosaics and, and swimming pools and theaters. He built things all over Israel. He built an aqueduct system, a beautiful aqueduct system to bring water from the Mount Carmel Range down to the Mediterranean Sea where he had one of his palaces in Caesarea, where he also had a pool built into the ocean. A, a, an in-ground pool. I mean, this guy was an amazing builder. 
But the greatest building achievement has to be his restoration and expansion of the temple and the temple mount in Jerusalem. On the screen there, you can see is a, a 1 to 50 scale model of Jerusalem during the first century. And what you can see there is how, I mean, it's hard maybe from where you're sitting looking at that picture, but all those little buildings around the Temple Mount, those are homes and, and, and buildings around Jerusalem. And there in the center is this giant space called the Temple Mount with the temple. And you can see that this was the heart of the city, right? It was amazing. But Herod wasn't just a builder. By the way, one of the things I love about that picture, so much of the New Testament, so many of the stories that we come to read took place there at the temple in Jerusalem. But Herod wasn't just a builder, right? Herod was also a destroyer. And I'm not talking about destroying buildings. I'm talking about destroying lives. He was consumed with a desire for power. He was constantly looking over his shoulder. He was one of the most paranoid kings to have ever lived. He was so consumed that somebody was going to come and take his throne. He would not think twice about murdering anybody that he saw as a threat. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his wife. He killed two of his sons. He killed 46 members of the, of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're told that when Herod heard about the birth of the king of the Jews, that's what the Magi coming from the east called him. They said, where is the king of the Jews? Herod was so obsessed and paranoid about losing his throne that he ordered every male baby in Bethlehem who was under two years old to be murdered. He was ruthless. He was a murderer. He was a destroyer. The Roman emperor Caesar Augustus once said, it is better to be Herod's dog than to be one of his children. Think about that. Let me point out one more thing about this time period. At the time when King Herod had ruled, uh, ruled in Judea under the Roman authority, it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people through the prophets. 400 years since the prophet Malachi wrote the final verses of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence from God as they waited for a Messiah. 400 years of, of oppression from nations like the Romans. No doubt, no doubt, there were many who felt like God had forgotten them. For many, their position seemed hopeless, right? And so when Luke says, in the days of Herod, in the days of Herod the Great, these are the types of feelings that would have been evoked by the original audience. And it's against this backdrop of hopelessness and life under the rule of King Herod that Luke now introduces two faithful followers, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're, they're an elderly couple who were both from the priestly line of Aaron. It says that they were godly and they were childless, right? Verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were a godly couple. They loved the Lord, they loved his word, and they lived their lives according to the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But, but, verse seven says, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren 
and both were advanced in years. Zechariah and Elizabeth were facing what seemed like a hopeless situation of their own, right? They had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and at this point, they were both well advanced in years. In other words, they're old, right? They are beyond the years where you have children. And in that culture, this was socially devastating for this couple. He may have been a priest, but the situation that they were facing would have caused whispers. People would have looked and said, what's wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth? What secret sin might they be hiding? They have no children. Psalm 127 verse 3 says that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And so many people in that day wrongly, might I add, wrongly believed that to, to, to not have a child was a sign of God's displeasure towards you. They believed it was some sort of a judgment from God. And so people would have looked down on Elizabeth and Zechariah, which is why Luke emphasizes that they were a godly couple. They weren't sinless, you know? If they were sinless, there's no reason to send a savior because they could have been the savior, right? They weren't sinless, but this was a godly couple. They really loved God. They loved his word, and they lived their lives according to God's word. And so you need to understand that their childlessness was not a punishment. It was a part of God's plan. God is going to bring hope into a situation that seemed hopeless. John the Baptist's birth is nothing short of a miracle, right? An obvious miracle and a reminder to, to him, to John the Baptist, and to his parents that this boy, God has special plans for him. He's going to use John the Baptist as part of his role to redeem humanity. As we discovered in our Joseph series, we may not always know what God is doing, but we can be confident that God is always, always working. Our responsibility, like Zechariah, and like Elizabeth, is to remain faithful. I love the fact. I love the fact that here's this couple in a culture where they would have been judged because they had no children. They're described as being faithful to God. They didn't give up on following God. They stayed faithful to God even through their disappointment, faithfully serving him even when things did not go the way that they had planned. You imagine how hard that is? I know you can because you've experienced disappointments, right? Things didn't go the way you planned. The question is, when that happens in our lives, do we stay faithful to him, trusting him that he has a plan, even if it's not the same as ours? By the way, Zechariah's name, it means God remembers. Isn't that cool? Even better, his wife Elizabeth's name means my God is an oath. My God is an oath. How fitting that this couple come together and their names mean that God remembers his oath. God remembers. What a cool thing. God is going to, through this couple, bring, he's going to remember his promise to his people and bring forth a Messiah who John the Baptist will be a forerunner for. God had not forgotten his promises. Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest, this is Zechariah, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside 
at the hour of incense. Now, historians suggest that at that time in, in, in Israel's history, there were approximately 18 to 24,000 priests serving in Israel. 18 to 24,000. That's a lot of priests, right? And so it, it was way more than you would need to be able to carry out the duties at the temple. So what they did is they divided the, the priesthood into 24 divisions. And what would happen is each division would come to the temple and they would serve for one week from Sabbath to Sabbath. And then they would go home, back to where they're from. And then 24 weeks later, they would return and they would serve another week from Sabbath to Sabbath. It's a good job, two weeks a year. It's, it's great. Sign me up. I think that's how we should do things today, don't you? Yeah, I like that. So they would come and they would serve their one week. And while they were there, they would cast lots to determine who would serve where. So if you, go, if you just base it on like 20,000, if we just use that number, 20,000 divided by 24, you got over 800 priests coming to Jerusalem to serve for the week. And then they would cast lots. And there would one of those people would be chosen to be the priest to go in and bring the, uh, the, the offering into the altar of incense. Very special job. Very special. Every morning and every night this would happen. A priest would go in. And it was such a rare occurrence. I mean, you got a one in 800 chance of the lot being drawn to you, right? And that year, or that day, rather, the lot fell to Zechariah. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. In fact, some historians write that once you were chosen, you were never allowed to do it again because it was such a special thing. And actually, many priests never even had the opportunity because the odds were so poor that they would be chosen. But on this day, the lot fell to Zechariah. Of course, we know that it's not per chance, is it? I mean, obviously, God is the one who's in control, and God has a very special appointment for Zechariah on this day. This is a divine appointment orchestrated by the hand of God. But this is just the beginning. I mean, Zechariah really believed he won the lottery that day, right? This is the highlight of his life. I get to go in to the holy place and bring the offering and put it on the altar of incense, right? This is a big, big deal for, for Zechariah, but this is just the beginning of what God has in store for him. As the whole multitude of the people were praying outside, Zechariah went into the holy place to perform his duties. He would go in and he would, he would trim the wicks on the menorah and then he would bring the coals, he would set the coals on the altar of incense and he would pour the, the, the mixture on top of that and the, 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 the fumes would rise up as a pleasant aroma to God, a symbol of like our prayers to God. Meanwhile, the people were actually literally praying outside in the courtyard. And as they're praying, he goes in and verse 11 says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. You think? I mean, have you ever been in a place where you thought you were alone and then you turn around and there's somebody standing there? What, what happens, right? You're like, oh, ah, I didn't know you were there. And it, sometimes it's really creepy, Right? It's really, can you imagine, like multiply that feeling times like a bajillion, right? He's in the most holy place at the temple. Um, he's in the holy place and, 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 and he looks and there's an angel. I mean, we know from the scriptures that when people see an angel, the, the normal reaction is fear, right? It's so funny too, people are like, 
you know, God, I totally would believe in you if you just show me an angel. Like, I don't, I honestly, I don't want to see an angel, to be honest with you. Like, every single person who sees an angel in the scripture is terrified, and Zechariah is no exception. So there he is. He's in the temple. He sees this angel. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. The angel tells Zechariah that there's no reason for you to be afraid, except the fact that I'm in the holy place with an angel, right? He says, I've got good news. You're going to be a dad. You're going to be a dad. Now, you have to figure. You have to figure that somewhere along the line for Zechariah and Elizabeth, when they got married, right, like all newlyweds, they're like, oh, we love each other. Everything is great. And they're just so excited, and we're going to have a family. I don't know, what do you want, six, seven, eight kids? I mean, they were a Jewish family early, first century. So maybe, maybe a dozen kids. And, you know, like, first son, we're going to name him Zechariah Jr. And they're picking names. But over time, what do you think happens? A few years go by, and there's no baby yet. And those expectations quickly become pleas, Right? Like, God, please give us a child. You know what? A dozen kids, no, just give us one. We just want to have a baby. But over time, you have to figure that eventually this godly couple resigned themselves to the fact that I guess this just isn't God's plan for us. They, they got to the point where they just maybe accepted it, and they continued to faithfully serve the Lord. At their age, this seemed impossible, right? This would be a miracle. But guess what? We're dealing with God here, right? God can perform miracles. And so the angel tells Zechariah that his prayer had been heard and they are going to have a son. This morning before the service, uh, one of the couples here in the church shared with me the good news that they just found out they are gonna have a baby. So exciting. What exciting news. But I also know that in this room, there are people who have been praying for certain things. Maybe it's a child, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the salvation of a, of a loved one. You've been praying for certain things for a really long time. And maybe the thing that you're praying for just seems hopeless. It's never gonna happen. It would take a miracle. My hope is that you'll be encouraged by this passage by what we read in these verses, because brothers and sisters, God heard their prayers. Isn't that great? God heard their prayers. Maybe prayers that they had stopped praying even, right? God heard their prayers, and we can trust the fact that God hears our prayers, and he has a plan for our lives. And whether his answer is a delayed yes, or whether it's an actual no, our responsibility is to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth, to be faithful through our disappointment, faithfully serving him even when things don't go the way that we hope. They continued to trust and they continued to follow the Lord. Well, after telling Zechariah that he would have a son, the angel then said, you will call his name John. And the name John means God is gracious. Yes, yes, he is. After all these years, he's gonna give us a son. But more than that, God is gracious because he's, he's not just a son. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. 
His name means a whole lot more than just for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the fact that God is the one that's choosing his name, because the parents usually would choose the name, right? The fact that God says, no, 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 you don't get to pick his name. You're going to name him John. It was an indication that God had special plans in store for Zechariah's son. Verse 14, the angel continues and he says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The angel tells Zechariah that his son will not only bring you know, joy and gladness to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he says that many are gonna rejoice at his birth because he will be great before the Lord. In fact, later, Jesus is gonna say something like this. I tell you, among those who are born of women, there is no one greater than John. John's life is gonna be a blessing to many. In verse 15, the angel tells Zechariah that his son must not drink wine or other strong drink, other alcoholic beverages. Now, this does not mean that wine or other alcoholic beverages are inherently evil, right? Rather, this is an indication that John's life is being set apart to God. Like the Nazarites in the Old Testament who took a vow to abstain from certain things, to abstain from certain things like drinking alcohol and like cutting their hair, John is being called to lay down certain rights and privileges that others are free to partake of. Do you see it? He's not saying that nobody can drink wine, nobody can drink alcohol. We know as the Bible teaches that we should not become drunk with wine, right? But I also know lots and lots of, of my brothers and sisters who willingly lay down that privilege that others are able to partake of because they feel a calling from God to do so. I just feel like I'm not supposed to, to drink alcohol, so they don't do it. Does that make it wrong for their friends or their brothers and sisters? No, no. But John is being set apart for a very specific purpose. And I think the important thing for each one of us is to recognize, what is God calling me to do? Amen? The angel also says that John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is pretty cool. We're going to see evidence of that in just a couple of weeks when, when, when the pregnant Mary visits Elizabeth, right? And the baby's going to leap inside her womb, right? John the Baptist is jumping around, you know, inside Elizabeth's belly when she hears Mary's, uh, Mary's voice. You know, in the Old Testament, God, for different times and for different purposes, would fill someone with the Holy Spirit for a specific task. But never, never had it been recorded that anyone would be filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. This is an amazing, amazing, uh, unique gift that God has given to John the Baptist for a very specific role, a very specific purpose, which the angel reveals in the next two verses. Verses 16 and 17 the angel continues and says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. By the way, we did a series about a year ago on the prophet uh, Elijah, 
And uh, one of the two things, when you think of the prophet Elijah, two things should come to mind. You should think of miracles, because that guy did some miracles. Amazing, right? And the other thing is, he was, he was calling the people to repentance, right? A politically corrupt time period, right? When uh, it was Ahab, right, was ruling. It's just terrible, terrible time in Israel's history. And, and uh, Elijah had a ministry calling the people to repentance. And we see that played out in the life of John the Baptist. Now, you need to keep in mind, though, as Zechariah is hearing these words from the angel, what is Zechariah? He is a priest, right? You think Zechariah was familiar with the Old Testament? He, he was very familiar with the Old Testament. And so when Zechariah hears these words coming from the angel, this is what Zechariah heard. Malachi, 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 Malachi. All he's hearing is Malachi, 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 because Malachi was the final prophet, the last prophet to speak to the nation of Israel before the 400 years of silence, before the Old Testament came to a close. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, these are the final two verses of the Old Testament. He says, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You know, when people turn their hearts back to the Lord and they repent and they come back to God, hearts of children are turned to their fathers and hearts of the fathers are turned to their children. After 400 years, 400 years of silence from God, Zechariah hears these words from the angel and he says, your son will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Your son will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah knew exactly what this angel was saying. This angel was saying, your son is going to be the messenger who goes before the long-awaited Messiah. I'm talking, can you imagine getting any better news as a dad? I mean, the fact that he's even going to be a dad is just overwhelming. He got chosen to be the guy, the priest who goes into the holy place. Then he finds out he's going to be a dad this is the best day of his life. Now he finds out that your son is going to be the, the, the great prophet who goes before the Messiah? What? This is an incredible, incredible day in Zechariah's life. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Okay. <laughs> you have to admit, 
that this is pretty funny, right? Zechariah is at the temple in Jerusalem. He is not just at the temple. He's in the holy place, a special honor that he thought he would probably never get to do. He's an old man. He's been passed over year after year after year after year. He never gets chosen to go in. He finally gets chosen to go in. He's in there, and he's in the presence of an angel who tells him that you're going to have a son, and your son's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And he says, how will I know? How will I know? You've got to give me a sign. I don't know, Zechariah. Maybe God will send an angel to tell you. I, like, Gabriel's not impressed. I think it's funny. Gabriel didn't think so. Gabriel didn't, didn't think so. Gabriel says, you're old? Big deal. Big deal. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you to bring you this good news. Now, this is Gabriel. This is the same angel who had appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. By the way, he was bringing a, a message about the coming Messiah as well in Daniel chapter 9. Apparently, Gabriel is, is God's special angel for dealing with things concerning the Messiah. He's going to appear to Daniel. He's going to appear to Zechariah. And he's going to appear to Mary in what we look at next week. Trust me. Zechariah was familiar with the story of Daniel. He knew Gabriel's name. He he knew exactly who Gabriel was. He just never expected to meet him, right? Gabriel says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. (laughs) Right? You ask dumb questions, you're dumb, you know? Literally, you're going to be dumb. Uh, You're not going to talk. You're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine how long those nine months must have been for Zechariah? He had just received the greatest news. All I can think is he must have been like, oh, I wish I could take those words back. What a dummy. Why did I say that? And for nine months, he had to be silent. The 400 years of silence. Let's just add nine months more. The Messiah is on his way. What, what an incredible news that he has received, incredible news to share with the people, but he can't, he can't talk. He can't talk. Verse 21 says, and the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. He's been there for quite a while, you know? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So while Zechariah is in the temple, right, he's, he's in the, the holy place, he's performing the duties of the priest, and again, trimming the wicks and the altar of incense, he's doing all this, and then sometime he's supposed to then, you know, bow, his, prostrate himself before the altar and then back out of the room. That's what he's supposed to do. And he's supposed to then come out and he's supposed to pronounce a blessing over the people. This is what the priest did. It shouldn't take too long. But he's in there, he's having a conversation with Gabriel, the angel. And the people are starting to worry. So finally, though, whew, okay, he's okay. Here he comes. Here he comes out. Now bless the people. He comes out. He puts his hands up. He's like, <laughs> right? He's like, he's like, I, he's, he wants to tell them what just happened. But honestly, try that one. You draw that card in charades. <laughs> you know? 
you pull out the card and it says, an angel of the Lord named Gabriel appeared to me and told me that we're going to have a son. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Right? Like, how do you do that one? And so all he's doing, he's just making all these signs with his hands and like, I have no idea what he's trying to say, but clearly he saw something inside the holy place. That's what they know. They don't know what it is and he's not able to tell them. I want you to think about something for a second. We, as Christ followers, and Zechariah, both have an incredible message to share with others. We both have an incredible message to tell others, right? Zechariah comes out of the holy place and he has the desire to tell others, but he has no voice. Whereas far too often, we have a voice, but we don't have the desire to tell others. You carry the most incredible news. Do you know it? You have an amazing message to tell the world. My prayer is that God would give us both the voice and the desire, the boldness to go out and share the good news about Jesus. It's an incredible message to tell others. There is hope in the midst of all the hopelessness. It's amazing. Verse 23, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, as for you know, why Elizabeth kept herself hidden for the first five months of her pregnancy, um, I'm not really sure. I'm really not sure. I literally read several dozens of, of, of suggestions about, about why she might have done this. But the overwhelming conclusion from all those who make suggestions is this. We don't know. We just don't know. It could be because of this, or it could be because of this, or it could be because of that. But at the end of the day, I have to admit, I just don't know. But I love what Elizabeth says in verse 25. She turns her praise to the Lord. Her focus is on what the Lord has done for her. You know, I think it's really encouraging to know that as God is working out the details, he's got a plan, right? He's going to redeem mankind through sending a forerunner and through sending his son. He could have had the forerunner, John the Baptist, be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth at a young age. He could have done that. He could have had anybody be the mom and dad. But I love the fact that as God is, is, is carrying out his plan of, of redemption, his plan of salvation, he cares about the needs and the desires of this faithful couple who had long since given up any hope that they would ever be parents. Don't you just love that? I love that. The Lord has not forgotten them, and the Lord has not forgotten his people, the Messiah is on the way. That's the good news. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? We're celebrating the first advent, the idea that Jesus the Messiah is on the way. We look back on an event that took place 2,000 years ago. They were looking forward to a, an event that was going to happen very, very soon. And we look forward to an event that could happen very, very soon. 
And that is the fact that the Messiah didn't just come once. The Messiah is coming again. He could come any day, right? Any day. Next week, we're going to be looking at, at Gabriel's next appointment. It's going to be with, with Mary, okay? That's next week. But let me just conclude our time with this. In verse 17, in verse 17, Zechariah was told that his son, John the Baptist, has a mission. And that mission is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist had a calling to prepare people for the coming Messiah. That was his calling. That's what he was called to do. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a calling to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. We have the same calling to let others know that Jesus has come and he is coming again. Our hearts, our hearts should long for people to be prepared for that coming. The question I have is twofold. Number one, are you fulfilling your calling to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, helping people to be prepared for Jesus' second coming? It's an important uh, calling that you've been given. Number one. Number two, and, and again, this actually happens before that. You need to ask yourself, am I prepared? Am I prepared for Jesus' coming? Am I ready to see the Son of God returning? And if you are, praise God, get out there and help others to get prepared. And if you're not, don't wait another day. Jesus came once, just as the Old Testament predicted that he would, and Jesus said, I'm coming again. He is going to come again. You need to be ready for when he comes. Amen? And if, you, if you're not, listen, if you're not ready for that, you, you're like, I don't even know what it means to be ready, then please come talk with me. Talk with somebody else here that you know has a relationship with Jesus, and we'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you, and, and invite you to give your life to Christ so that if he comes today, if he comes tomorrow, if he comes next week, you're ready to meet him. Amen? Let's pray. Yes, amen. Praise God. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. I thank you so much. We, 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 again, I, I, I said this at the beginning, Lord, but we take for granted that we hold your word in our hands. And everything you said you would do in the Old Testament, you did. And there's still a few things left to be done. And, and God, we, we are confident that you're going to do those things too. We are confident that you, as you said you were going to come again, you will. And God, like John the Baptist, you've given us this incredible calling to make ready for you a people prepared. And so God, starting with, with ourselves, would you help us to be prepared? To be like Zechariah and Elizabeth, committed to your word, committed to living lives that bring you honor. Growing closer to you every day, understanding your will for our lives. And God, help us also to be committed to the mission that you gave to your people, to introduce you to others so that they too could become followers of your son, Jesus. What a gift. We thank you so much for this season of Advent. And God, we pray, we pray that people who don't already know you would come to know you this season. We pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.